This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton Section 9, Chapter 5, Part 1, Some American Cities there is one point almost to be called a paradox to be noted about new york and that is that in one sense it is really new the term very seldom has any relevance to the reality the new forest is nearly as old as the conquest and the new theology is nearly as old as the creed things have been offered to me as the new thought that might be more properly called the old thoughtlessness and the thing we call the new poor law is already old enough to know better but there is a sense in which new york is always new in the sense that it is always being renewed a stranger might well say that the chief industry of the citizens consists of destroying their city but he soon realizes that they always started all over again with undiminished energy and hope at first i had a fancy that they never quite finished putting up a big building without feeling that it was time to pull it down again and that somebody began to dig up the first foundations while somebody else was putting on the last tiles this fills the whole of this brilliant and bewildering place with a quite unique and unparalleled air of rapid ruin ruins spring up so suddenly like mushrooms which with us are the growth of age like mosses that one half expects to see ivy climbing quickly up the broken walls as in nightmare of the time machine or in some incredibly accelerated cinema there is no sight in any country that raises my own spirits so much as a scaffolding it is a tragedy that they always take the scaffolding away and leave us nothing but a mere building if they would only take the building away and leave us a beautiful scaffolding it would in most cases be a gain to the loveliness of the earth if i could analyze what it is that lifts the heart about the lightness and clarity of such a white and wooden skeleton i could explain what it is that really charming about new york in spite of its suffering from the curse of cosmopolitanism and even the provincial superstition of progress it is partly that all this destruction and reconstruction is an unexhausted artistic energy but it is partly also that it is in artistic energy that does not take itself too seriously it is first because man is here a carpenter and secondly because he is a stage carpenter indeed there is about the whole scene the spirit of scene shifting it therefore touches whatever nerve in us has since childhood thrilled at all theatrical things but the picture will be imperfect unless we realize something which gives it unity and marks its chief difference from the climate and colors of western europe we may say that the back scene remains the same the sky remained and in the depths of winter it seemed to be blue with summer and so clear that i almost flattered myself that clouds were english products like primroses an american would probably retort on my charge of scene shifting by saying that at least he only shifted the towers and domes of the earth and that in england it is the heavens that are shifty 
and indeed we have changes from day to day that would seem to him as distinct as different magic lantern slides one view showing the bay of naples and the next the north pole i do not mean of course that there are no changes in american weather but as a matter of proportion it is true that the most unstable part of our scenery is the most stable part of theirs indeed we might almost be pardoned the boast that britain alone really possesses the noble thing called weather most other countries having to be content with climate it must be confessed however that they often are content with it and the beauty of new york which is considerable is very largely due to the clarity that brings out the colors of varied buildings against the equal color of the sky Strangely enough, I found myself repeating about this vista of the West two vivid lines in which Mr. W. B. Yeats has called up a vision of the East, and colored like the eastern birds at evening in their rainless skies. To invoke a somewhat less poetic parallel, even the untraveled Englishman has probably seen American posters and trade advertisements of a patchy and gaudy kind in which a white house or a yellow motor-car are cut out as in cardboard against a sky like blue marble i used to think it was only new art but i found that it is really new york it is not for nothing that the very nature of local character has gained the nickname of local color color runs through all our experience and we all know that our childhood found talismanic gems in the very paints in the paint-box, or even in their very names. And just as the very name of Crimson Lake really suggested to me some sanguine and mysterious mere dark yet red as blood, so the very name of Burnt Sienna became afterwards tangled up in my mind with the notion of something traditional and tragic, as if some such golden Italian city had really been darkened by many conflagrations in the wars of medieval democracy now if one had the caprice of conceiving some city exactly contrary to one thus seared and seasoned by fire its colour might be called up to a childish fancy by the mere name of raw umber and such a city is new york i used to be puzzled by the name of raw umber being unable to imagine the effect of fried umber or stewed umber but the colours of new york are exactly in that key and might be adumbrated by phrases like raw pink or raw yellow it is really in a sense like something uncooked or something which the satiric would call half-baked and yet the effect is not only beautiful it is even delicate i had no name for this nuance until i saw that somebody had written of the pastel tinted towers of new york and i knew that the name had been found there are no paints dry enough to describe all that dry light and it is not a box of colors but of crayons if the englishman returning to england is moved at the sight of a block of white chalk the american sees rather a bundle of chalks nor can i imagine anything more moving fairy tales are told to children about a country where the trees are like sugar sticks and the lakes like treacle but most children would feel almost as greedy for a fairyland where the trees were like brushes of green paint and the hills were of colored chalks but here what accentuates this arid freshness is the fragmentary look of the continual reconstruction and change the strong daylight finds everywhere the broken edge of things 
and the sort of hues we see in newly turned earth or the white sections of trees and it is in this respect that the local color can literally be taken as local character for new york considered in itself is primarily a place of unrest and those who sincerely love it as many do love it for the romance of its restlessness a man almost looks at a building as he passes to wonder whether it will be there when he comes back from his walk and the doubt is part of an indescribable notion as of a white nightmare of daylight which is increased by the very numbering of the streets with its tangle of numerals which at first makes an english head reel the detail is merely a symbol and when he is used to it he can see that it is like the most humdrum human customs both worse and better than his own two seven one west fifty second street is the easiest of all addresses to find but the hardest of all addresses to remember he who is like myself so constituted as necessarily to lose any piece of paper he has particular reason to preserve will find himself wishing the place were called pinecrest or heather crag like any unobtrusive villa in streatham but his sense of some sort of incalculable calculations as of the vision of a mad mathematician is rooted in a more real impression his first feeling that his head is turning round is due to something really dizzy in the movement of a life that turns dizzily like a wheel if there be in that modern mind something paradoxical that can find peace in change it is here that he has indeed built its habitation or rather is still building and unbuilding it one might fancy that it changes in everything and that nothing endures but its invisible name and even its name as i have said seems to make a boast of novelty that is something like a sincere first impression of the atmosphere of new york those who think that is the atmosphere of america have never got any farther than new york we might almost say that they have never entered america any more than if they had been detained like undesirable aliens at ellis island and indeed there are a good many undesirable aliens detained in manhattan island too but of that i will not speak being myself an alien with no particular pretensions to be desirable anyhow such is new york but such is not the new world the greatest american republic contains very considerable varieties and of these varieties i necessarily saw far too little to allow me to generalize but from the little i did see i should venture on the generalization that the great part of america is singularly and even strikingly unlike new york it goes without saying that new york is very unlike the vast agricultural plains and small agricultural towns of the middle west which i did see it may be conjectured with some confidence that it is very unlike what is called the wild and sometimes the woolly west which i did not see but i am here comparing new york not with the newer states of the prairie or the mountains but with the other older cities of the atlantic coast and new york as it seems to me is quite vitally different from the other historic cities of america it is so different that it shows them all for the moment in a false light as a long white searchlight will throw a light that is fantastic and theatrical upon ancient and quiet villages folded in the everlasting hills philadelphia and boston and baltimore are more like those quiet villages than they are like new york if i were to call this book the antiquities of america 
I should give rise to misunderstanding and possibly to annoyance. And yet the double sense in such words is an undeserved misfortune for them. We talk of Plato or the Parthenon or the Greek passion for beauty as parts of the antique, but hardly of the antiquated. When we call them ancient, it is not because they have perished, but because they have survived. In the same way, I heard some New Yorkers refer to Philadelphia or Baltimore as dead towns. They mean by a dead town a town that has had the impudence not to die. Such people are astonished to find an ancient thing alive, just as they are now astonished and will be increasingly astonished to find Poland or the Papacy or the French nation still alive. And what I mean by Philadelphia and Baltimore being alive is precisely what these people mean by their being dead. It is continuity. It is the presence of the life first breathed into them and of the purpose of their being. It is the benediction of the founders of the colonies and the fathers of the republic. This tradition is truly to be called life, for life alone can link the past and the future. It merely means that what was done yesterday makes some difference today, so what is done today will make some difference tomorrow. In New York it is difficult to feel that any day will make any difference. These moderns only die daily without power to rise from the dead. But I can truly claim that in coming into some of these more stable cities of the States, I felt something quite sincerely of that historic emotion which is satisfied in eternal cities of the Mediterranean. I felt in America what many Americans suppose can only be felt in Europe. I have seldom had that sentiment stirred more simply and directly than when I saw from afar off above the vast grey labyrinth of Philadelphia great pen upon his pinnacle like the graven figure of a god who has fashioned a new world and remembered that his body lay buried in a field at the turning of a lane a league from my own door. For this aspect of America is rather neglected in the talk about electricity and headlines. Needless to say, the modern vulgarity of avarice and advertisement sprawls all over Philadelphia or Boston. But so it does over Winchester or Canterbury. But most people know that there is something else to be found in Canterbury or Winchester. Many people know that it is rather more interesting, and some people know that Alfred can still walk in Winchester and that St. Thomas at Canterbury was killed but did not die. It is at least as possible for a Philadelphian to feel the presence of Penn and Franklin as for an Englishman to see the ghosts of Alfred and of Becket. Tradition does not mean a dead town. It does not mean that the living are dead, but that the dead are alive. It means that it still matters what Penn did two hundred years ago, or what Franklin did a hundred years ago. I never could feel in New York that it mattered what anybody did an hour ago. And these things did and do matter. Quakerism is not my favorite creed, but on that day when William Penn stood unarmed upon that spot and made his treaty with the Red Indians, his creed of humanity did have a triumph, and a triumph that has not turned back. The praise given to him is not a priggish fiction of our conventional history though such fictions have illogically curtailed it. The nonconformists have been rather unfair to Penn, even in picking their praises, and they generally forget that toleration cuts both ways, and that an open mind is open on all sides. 
Those who deify him for consenting to bargain with the savages cannot forgive him for consenting to bargain with the Stuarts. And the same is true of the other city, yet more closely connected with the tolerant experiment of the Stuarts. The state of Maryland was the first experiment in religious freedom in human history. Lord Baltimore and his Catholics were a long march ahead of William Penn and his Quakers on what is now called the Path of Progress. That the first religious toleration ever granted in the world was granted by Roman Catholics is one of those little informing details with which our Victorian histories did not exactly teem. But when I went into my hotel at Baltimore and found two priests waiting to see me, I was moved in a new fashion. For I felt that I touched the end of a living chain, nor was the impression accidental. It will always remain with me, with a mixture of gratitude and grief, for they brought a message of welcome from a great American, whose name I had known from childhood, and whose career was drawing to its close. For it was but a few days after I left the city that I learned that Cardinal Gibbons was dead. The end of section nine, chapter five, part one.